Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will have a southern border update. We'll also talk about Trump's arrest in Georgia, Prigozhin's death at the hands of Putin, and Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson. We've got a special guest today. Dr. Richard Gibbons is going to talk about his recent trip to Scotland to preach for the King and Queen of England. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and you know what time it is. If you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you got to figure out that it's time to crank it up. then we got a lot to do today it's going to be a jam-packed show we got a lot to get to including the interview with dr richard gibbons that's coming up at uh, eight o'clock this morning he's the senior pastor at first presbyterian of greenville he's a good friend of mine he's been on the show many times and i'm looking forward to talking to him about an um, amazing opportunity that he had to go to scotland and preach for the king and queen of england i mean you just you know you just don't get to do that every day um, so I'm looking forward to hearing him talk about that. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tony Beam. I am the Senior Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at uh, Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. All right, let's get to the border update. When you have a wall, somewhere along the wall, there has to be doors or gates and to allow points of entry, to allow, for example, uh, flood waters during the rainy season, the monsoon season, to be able to flow back and forth. Or if, Because if you, if you just got a solid wall and you don't have a place for the water to go, it's going to back up behind the wall and it's going to be... It's going to be a mess. Um, and believe it or not, you also have to have places in a wall, particularly along the border, for, get this, antelope migration. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's when the, the ant, where the deer and the antelope play. You know, this is where we're talking about where the border is. Apparently, the deer and the antelope also go back and forth at certain times during the year, and there has to be open access for that. Well, we're now finding out that for months, the gates and doors along a portion of the completed wall at the southern border in Arizona have been wide open. And I'm not talking about propped open, like you have one of those little wedges, you know, you put under it to make sure the door doesn't shut. I'm talking about welded open. And we don't have any idea who welded the doors open, but we know they've been open for months. According to the New York Post, the Biden administration ordered 114 floodgates to be welded open along the Arizona section of the border wall. And the explanation, again, is monsoon season, let the water flow. They're 12 feet high, these doors, allowing for not only the flow of water, but for a flood of illegal immigrants to cross into the United States. Um, the rainy season, the monsoon season, began late this year, and so that allowed weeks of open access. These doors were wide open. Uh, for people looking for the opportunity to enter the country illegally. Uh, the order to weld the gates open came from multiple agencies, and so we can't really pin it down. Uh, one of the agencies was the National Park Service. So it's estimated that 1,400 immigrants a day, 1,400 a day, passed through the gates where there were no Border Patrol agents. I mean, this was this is not a place because of the wall being in place that is that is generally patrolled by the border patrol, and yet human traffickers we're now finding out, and drug cartels have reportedly been been driving busloads of immigrants to the entry points and releasing them to pass through. In fact, the increase of illegal crossings rose 33% in total in the month of July, and the bulk of those numbers were being driven by illegal entries into Arizona. Now, we know that for at least the month of June, for a couple of month, few months, uh, March, April, May, into June, we had a, a decrease in the number of crossings, and we've talked about that. 
that the Biden administration has been touting those numbers, but the the inc- the numbers are rising again. Uh, Border Patrol agent uh, agents rather processed over a hundred and eighty thousand migrants, immigrants in the month of July. One hundred and thirty thousand of those we know crossed the border illegally, and a record forty thousand crossed near Tucson, Arizona. That's a record for that area. Um, There's some court challenges that may eventually influence the number of illegals coming into the country, but it's not going to be for a while. Uh, Texas has sued the Biden administration for creating what they call an unprecedented expansion of the number of legal pathways into the country. The lawsuit also says that the administration has abused its use of parole programs to allow immigrants to pass into the country and, and, of course, the Biden administration says they're coming in legally, but the state of Texas and also, as we think about this, that the, the reason that they're coming through the parole program is to simply lower the number of people that are coming in illegally, but allow the same number of people coming in. It's just giving them a different classification. It's supposed to be granted, according to the state of Texas, parole is supposed to be granted only on a case-by-case basis. And when there's clear benefit to the United States, the Biden administration's pushing back on that. They say that that the the parole program is being considered on a case-by-case basis and that the benefits have been the reduction of illegal entries into the country. But again, what... You know, you say potato, I say patata. I mean, you've got it, these are people coming into the country in in great numbers, um, and and instead of securing the border and cutting down the flow, you just shift the classification from illegal to e- illegal through the parole program, and you process the, the the people that are coming across, and you you let them in, and there's just there's no comprehensive thought process going into this. Um, there, there's no plan. There's, And this is why you've got Democrat mayors and Democrat governors far away from the border, for example, in New York City that and Chicago, that are dealing with uh, immigrants that are coming into the country and are finding their way to New York and Chicago, either being bused there by Republican governors uh, at the border or they're finding their way in other ways because the, these these migrants, these illegal immigrants, when they come in, they ask. I mean, it's not like they're being forced to go to a particular place. They're given the opportunity to select where they want to go. They're just they, we can't just stack them up somewhere along the border. So they're going to sanctuary cities. I mean, why would you not want to go to the city, to go to New York? Uh, it's a sanctuary city. It's supposed to be welcoming. And now Mayor Adams in New York is overwhelmed with over 100,000 that have come into the city. They're out of space. Uh, It's putting pressure on him. The same thing is happening in Chicago. And we're starting to see Democrats criticize the administration and begin to demand that some kind of accountability and some kind of uh, process has been put, put in place for immigration, that the border actually is secure and that we have a system that makes sense for the people that are allowed to come in. So back to the court challenges here for a second. The Biden administration says, again, parole is the parole system is working. They're doing it on a case-by-case basis. Last month, the Senate now, and, and this is what's amazing about this to me, is that the Democrats have had enough of this to the point that the Senate, which is led by Democrats, passed a measure that would force the administration to restart the building of the border wall. That that happened last month. Uh, but the administration is kind of blunting that because they've started auctioning off pieces of the wall as well as other materials, construction equipment, for example, along the border. Uh, the New York Post says approximately $2 million in steel bollards have been auctioned off so far. This is material that's used to construct the wall, and it's been it's estimated that when President Trump left office, there was about $300 million in materials that's, that were positioned along the southern border for construction of the wall that were just left to rust. Obviously, the Biden administration wasn't going to continue to build the wall. Uh, they, they've Since Biden has been in charge— um, it's been an open border policy. I know that Secretary Mayorkas and others, um, Vice President Kamala Harris, even President Biden himself, have claimed 
over and over again that the border is secure that and and that we we don't have this problem and yet the numbers keep increasing again in July 180,000 with 130,000 crossing illegally so what what what's going on here what what's going to be done about it is there is there any solution apart from a change in administration and that's what a lot of people are saying they're saying look the Biden administration is always going to find a way just like they're finding a way in other places to, to get their agenda across in other places without having to go through Congress. I mean, they don't, they don't have the House. Democrats don't have the House. And so to get their agenda across, the president has to go through the regulatory system or he has to go through executive order or he has to just simply instruct different departments to begin to take actions that support his policies apart from getting legislation passed. And, of course, the president can do that because that the executive branch is supposed to be in, in, in charge of how the laws are enforced. And so President Biden uses that power. Uh, but, but the problem is it circumvents the American people. It circumvents the will of the people. It circumvents the will of the legislature. Um, and, and it just puts the policy in place that the administration wants without going through the proper channels. Um, Wednesday night's debate with the Republicans, there were several candidates that addressed the border crisis. And one of the people I think that did this particularly well was Senator Scott. Um, Senator Scott talked about, he, he talked about the number, not just the, the number of, um, the, the illegal immigrants that were coming in. He, he talked about sort of actually had a plan, he said, we need to get rid, instead of hiring all these extra IRS agents, what we really need to be doing is getting people, um, hiring people for the border. His plan kind of calls for flooding the border with a lot of, of new people, um, of, of border patrol agents, and also getting the technology that's needed. Uh, because that's, I mean, that's that's one of the the, the biggest problems um, is that even though if you have a wall at the border, you've got to have some kind of backup. You've got to have the the technological ability to follow up um, and and to to try to make sure that if people do get around the wall or they get on, they they're able to tunnel under or somehow circumvent that you have the technology in place. Uh, to catch them once they get through. But Tim Scott's uh, performance at the debate on Wednesday night, one of his best answers, I think, one of the moments when he really stood out was when he talked about this problem. Here's what it sounded like. Scott on China, that same question. And I speak about China. Let's, let's fire the 87,000 IRS agents and hire or double the number of Border Patrol agents. I just left Yuma, Arizona about two weeks ago. The most pressing need of the American people from a national security standpoint is our southern border. It has led to the death of 70,000 Americans because of fentanyl. Plus, six million illegal crossings since President Biden has taken office and 200 people on our national security watch list have been caught at our border. How many have not been caught at our southern border? If we just spent $10 billion, we could finish the wall. For $5 billion more, we could have the military-grade technology to surveil our southern border to stop the flow of fentanyl and save 70,000 Americans a year. That should be the priority of this government. And as the next president of the United States, I will make that border wall complete. Now, to me, that was, that was Senator Scott's best moment. Um, and talking to different people uh, yesterday, I had several people reference that, that his answer on the border was, was the best answer because it was the most comprehensive. Uh, comprehensive. Uh, Governor DeSantis' response received a lot of attention because basically he said that people crossing the border, if they're, if they're drug traffickers, uh, he would use force and he would actually shoot them as they come across the border. When these drug pushers are bringing fentanyl across the border, that's going to be the last thing they do. We're going to use force and we're going to leave them stone cold dead. We're, we're
Stone Cold Dead. Now that got a lot of response, and I I, I chuckle about that, and I, I shouldn't because we're talking about life and death issues here, but we are talking about fentanyl um, drug traffickers. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't have a problem if it's necessary. If we can take them into custody, let's take them into custody. But if, if they resist, then, I mean, they're causing the death of countless number of Americans. I, it, I think it was 70,000 is the number that Senator Scott put forth. And so this is, this is absolutely an untenable situation, and I think it calls for drastic measures. And if that means putting the military on the border or it means empowering Border Patrol agents to engage drug traffickers as they're coming across, it, it's, a, it's a forceful response. It's required to stop this, the, the flow because it's just it, it's absolutely ridiculous. All right, um, also from the debate on Wednesday night, Vice President Pence sort of got into a uh, – he was attacked basically because they were saying, look, uh, the question was, he, while he was in office with President Trump, they didn't finish the border wall. Why didn't they finish the wall? And Vice President Pence responded by touting Trump's record as he was president when it comes to immigration. Look, we secured the southern border of the United States of America and reduced illegal immigration and asylum abuse by 90 percent. When Joe Biden took over, he threw open the southern border of the United States and the wave of humanity, the wave of fentanyl that's been eloquently described here is, is a wave of human tragedy across this country. Okay, so I thought Pence handled that well. Um, like I said, when I, we talked a little bit about the debate yesterday, I thought um, I thought Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, uh, and Governor DeSantis stood out, or, or as far as, as, as I'm concerned, uh, had some of the best answers to policy questions. But the person who I think gained the most traction from the debate on Wednesday night was um, Vivek Ramaswamy. So, and we'll see as the polls start coming out. Uh, there was actually a Fox News poll that was done the day after the debate, and I've got it here somewhere, but it the numbers, I thought, were surprising because the, uh, the Fox News poll showed that a plurality of Republican primary voters that they surveyed, 29% said that DeSantis, they thought DeSantis did the best job. They thought he won the debate. 26% said Ramaswamy. And I think it was down to 14% for Nikki Haley, and then it went down from there. So, um, I mean, if, if that's true, then this turned out to be a much better night for Ron DeSantis than I thought in terms of the way the people responded. In that poll, a lot of the people that didn't like Vivek Ramaswamy said that they thought he was too aggressive. Um, they thought he was, he was too abrasive. But 26% did say that they thought he won. That's only 3% behind those who said DeSantis won. And so the real question is not the day after the debate poll, but when you start looking at polling within the Republican primary, is DeSantis going to be able to keep his second-place status as the main challenger to Donald Trump? Trump's still way ahead, still at 62%, or at least he was going into the debate Wednesday night. Now, some people are suggesting because of the way that Vivek behaved, you know, he said Donald Trump was the best president of the 21st century um, and that he was, uh, you know, an amazing leader. He was very uh, complimentary to Trump. And any all of the policies that Trump would agree with, then Vivek was echoing while he was on the debate stage. And so, you know, the question is, it, is he sort of in the race to be Trump without being Trump to overtake DeSantis to blunt any of the rest of the candidates from actually uh, gaining or having an opportunity to overtake the president? Is that his role in this primary? I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I have no idea. I don't have any evidence that President Trump and Vivek are working together on this. But even if they're not Physically, that is, have had a conversation and have a plan. It's turning out that that's the kind of, at least in this first debate, that that's the way it's shaking out. Because you've got Vivek obviously was the guy that was the 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 most Trump, I guess you could say. Without Donald Trump being there, he would have been Trump the second in the debate. 
in the way that he answered the questions. And he drew a lot of attention because of that. And, and of course, he also drew the fire of the other people that were on the stage. That kind of gave DeSantis a break because most people believe that DeSantis was going to be the center of attention. Turned out the way that, that Vivac opened, then it opened up with Chris Christie coming after him, and then Nikki Haley clashed with him, and then Mike Pence. And so even, even if you're in a clash, even if you're in an argument, even if it's maybe perceived as a negative, it's putting the spotlight on Vivac, and he had a much better debate uh, than, I think, in terms of his ability to move up than he would have otherwise. All right, um, one other thing I wanted to bring up from the debate on Wednesday night that we didn't get a chance to talk about yesterday because we had a lot of interviews. Um, Governor DeSantis told a story that has just absolutely outraged the left um, in that he was talking about someone named Penny in Florida who was discarded in a bedpan um, when there was a possibility that the, she was still alive. It was a it was a botched abortion. And I want you to hear him tell the story, and then we're going to hear the left's response, and then I want you to hear from the actual person that told the story to Governor DeSantis. Here we go with Ron DeSantis from the debate. You got to do what you think is right. I believe in a culture of life. Uh, I was proud to sign the heartbeat bill. Uh, I remember the most impactful moments of my life was when I heard the heartbeat of my oldest daughter uh, in my wife's womb and then saw the sonograms of all three of my kids. What the Democrats are trying to do on this issue is wrong to allow abortion all the way up to the moment of birth. I know a lady in Florida named Penny. She survived multiple abortion attempts. She was left discarded in a pan. Fortunately, her grandmother saved her and brought her to a different hospital. We're better than what the Democrats are selling. We are not going to allow abortion all the way up till birth, and we will hold them accountable for their extremism. But just now, that, to me, that was one of DeSantis' best moments, just like I was talking about Tim Scott earlier. I think when DeSantis let his passion come out without sort of, you know, early on, to me, he sounded angry. And I don't know if he was, it was just pent up adrenaline or he was told by his advisors that he needed to come across as angry. But as the debate went on, he sort of took this tone. It was passionate, but it was also not not edgy the way that it was at the very beginning. And I thought that was better for him. All right. Um, but as you can imagine, he told this story, I mean, at least a few of the details, he didn't really get into the depth of the story, but he was talking about um, a, a woman named Penny who went, her mother went in to have an abortion and the, the abortion was botched. Penny was born alive, but was left to die um, until grandparents interceded. Well, there's a website called The Recount. Now, they call themselves a, a, a journalistic website that uses video to communicate uh, truth and to engage people and to get the word out about different things. And, and on The Recount, this was their response to DeSantis' story. They, of course, it was very derisive. The first Republican primary debate, let's go. Starting off really strong, I'm still trying to decipher this story that Ron DeSantis told about this woman named Penny, um, who survived five abortion attempts and then was found in a pan on the side of the road. I have so many questions, like Penny is the mother, Penny is the fetus, Penny exists. The rest of the abortion discussion obviously included the Republicans' favorite refrain that Democrats want to abort babies up until the moment of birth which continues to be disconnected entirely from actual women's lives. And that disconnect has started to show as abortion lands on multiple ballots and keeps getting affirmed by states over and over again. Okay, so this was, she's basically mocking the story that DeSantis told. Um, and, and it turns out the story is true. How do we know? Well, because Penny's story has actually been told by a pro-life group, and it's been it's called uh, Faces of Choice, and her story is available at YouTube, and it's a little long, but I'm going to go ahead and play it for you because I think it's incredibly compelling. Here's Penny talking about that botched abortion in her own words. 
My mother entered the local clinic, Wachula Infirmary, with complications at 23 weeks. She was extremely ill and experiencing spotting. After examining my mother, he listened for a heartbeat and he said, I do not hear a heartbeat, we're going to have to abort. He induced the abortion by giving my mother a shot. He looked at both my parents and he said, you do not want this baby to live. If it lives, it will be a burden on you all of your life. Before returning home, he looked at the nurse and he gave her orders to discard the baby dead or alive. When I came into the world weighing one pound, 11 ounces, the nurse wrapped me in a face towel placed me in a bedpan on the back porch of the clinic. My grandmother and my Aunt Ruby came down to visit with my mother. My grandmother, later described by my father, went into orbit when she found out that I was alive. She was so upset about the circumstances that she contacted the local police. The nurse who cared for my mother volunteered to transport me to a morale hospital in Lakeland, Florida. I finally did make it to Lakeland where I was placed under the care of Dr. Johnson. According to my father, he too did not think my life had value and that I needed to survive. I had pneumonia several times. My hair turned copper red from the oxygen and the isolate. The nurses ended up naming me Penny because of the color of my hair, and that is a name I still carry today. I remained in the hospital until March 12, 1956. And according to my mother, that was the first time she'd ever held me. My father passed away in 2011, but before he passed away, he looked at me and he said, Honey, I don't know what I've done without you. No matter what circumstances my parents were facing surrounding my mother's pregnancy, I ended up having great parents. I ended up having a great life. I ended up with a brother who's my best friend. I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. I have two children and seven grandchildren. Okay, there's Penny's story. And if that's not heart-wrenching enough, I mean, to hear the kind of life that she has, this is where the, the pro-choice people, the pro-death camp, as far as I'm concerned, fall terribly short. I mean, they, they, a doctor basically says to parents, if this baby lives, she's going to be nothing but a burden to you for the rest of your life. She lives, and she's nothing but a blessing, because that's what life is. Life is a blessing. Life is a gift from God. It's not something that is hurtful. It's the most natural thing in the world. I mean, God said that we should be fruitful and multiply at creation, and families, creating families, husbands, wives, coming together, creating families, creating an environment where you you have um, just wonderful relationships that are priceless and that give life meaning. I mean, the fact that we we have these relationships are a gift from God. And when, when people talk about the value of life as if it's just an inconvenience, and some women now are talking about or actually referring to a baby in their womb as this alien that they need to get rid of. I mean, I've heard some of these uh, videos where women are touting their abortions, and it, it's just unbelievable to me that that people would consider this beautiful gift of life as being something that should be discarded. I appreciate Ron DeSantis signing the heartbeat bill in Florida. I'm thankful that the heartbeat bill in South Carolina is now the law and we're no longer a destination state. And as, as long as, as I have breath, um, I'm going to do everything that I can and work toward trying to protect life in the womb because it is made in the image of God. And you just heard Penny's story. I mean, her life could have come to a tragic end in a bedpan. And instead, she was transported to a hospital. She's lived a full life. She has children and grandchildren and people that she's had an impact on uh, for her entire life. Her mother and father are obviously have expressed great joy that she's alive. And this is, this is where people who are pro-death, pro-choice, they, they miss the boat. They, they don't get it. They don't understand the blessings that come with life far outweigh any of the challenges that come, even in a difficult pregnancy. I mean, I, I don't know a, a single family that would go back and say, I wish I'd had an abortion once they have the child in the home. All right. Uh, we're going to, we're going to now go to uh, Dr. Gibbons. Uh, he was calling in 
right on time. Dr. Richard Gibbons, we welcome you to the program this morning. Thanks for calling. Tony, good morning, and I'm delighted to be with you, ready to crank it up on trains. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Uh, since we've already cranked it up, we'll, um, we'll, we'll just go ahead and, and talk about your trip. You had an amazing opportunity. You were blessed uh, to be able to go to Scotland, and not only go to Scotland, but while you were there, you preached for the King and Queen of England. Now, I'm just going to stop talking and let you tell this story because it's amazing. <laughs> Tony, first of all, thank you for the invitation to be with you this morning. I'm most grateful. It was, just as you say, a remarkable opportunity and an enormous privilege. And the way the invitation came about is a little like this. Each year, Britain's royal family spend from around mid-August to mid-late September in their, what they call their Highland home, and it's Balmoral Castle in rural Aberdeenshire. And each Sunday as they're there, they attend worship on the Sunday morning at Crathy Parish Church. And early July, I got an email from the minister at Crathy Church saying, Richard, it's been 25, 30 years since we... Uh, met each other and I take conference and things together and I wondered if you would be kind enough to consider coming as a guest preacher uh, either August to September or maybe next year and of course when you receive an invitation like that you are simply just overwhelmed and I can only assume that he was looking for someone with a very rich southern accent <laughs> and so when, when, when all of that started to work in my mind of course you're a little uh, you're looking overwhelmed you think gosh what will I speak on how will I get there where will I stay and all of that runs through your mind at the same time but you're also asking yourself how do I minister in that context, first and foremost, to the congregation who are there? Because right. the entire congregation of the local community are there, and then the king and queen as well. So that's how it came about, and that's the extraordinary nature of it. Well, let me ask you, uh, let me ask you this. Did you know when you received the invitation that the king and queen would be present? And, and do you know that they, yes, is that yes, the church? Is. So you know that, that they go to that church regularly. So yes. uh, you, Correct. you, you, and you they tell you in the invitation, yeah, they tell you in the invitation, uh, would you please come as a guest preacher in the presence of His Majesty, uh, of their, their Majesties, rather. Yeah. Wow, that, that's incredible. Now, you talk about the preparation that you went through. Uh, not just for the trip, but obviously to be prepared mm -hmm. to bring a message to the congregation. How long did you spend yes. preparing that message? Oh, gosh, Tony, that's a great question. And folks have been asking me since I got back this past Monday night, what are some of your lasting memories of the trip? Well, of course, there are the ones of the travel and meeting uh, very famous people and engaging with them. But one of my special memories is the hours that I spent praying, preparing, thinking, asking the Lord for his leading and his guiding. And those are those minutes, I would have to tell you, in fact, turned out to be hours and hours, uh, were some of the sweetest of my Christian life, preparing and praying in the presence of God and his leading and guiding and directing. And there was a level of intimacy there that was rather special, I'd have to say. Now, what did you preach? What was the topic and what was the scripture that you used? Sure. I focused on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And many of your listeners will know that this is a passage where the Apostle Paul says, I am praying for you that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen you in your inner being. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says, I kneel in prayer. And I made the point that it's rare someone with a Jewish background kneels to pray. Most of us will have seen uh, film footage of the Western Wall in Jerusalem, and folks are standing there to pray. So when Paul says, I kneel to pray, there is a passionate intensity in that prayer. And praying that they would be strengthened in their inner beings is a little like a very good friend looking you in the eye, giving you a hug, shaking you by the hand and saying, I'm praying for you. It's that sort of level of prayer. And I made that point last Sunday. But I also said, you may be sitting here this morning saying to yourself, Richard, I wish someone would pray for me like that. 
because over the last couple of years, my wife has been diagnosed with dementia and I'm not sure what to do, or perhaps you've lost a child or your marriage is on the rocks. And I said, now in the midst of all of that, the greatest prayer someone could pray for you is that God in his comforting presence, his enabling grace, would strengthen you in your inner being and assure you that he puts his arms of love and grace around you and says, I've got you. Amen. Well, that's a great message for any people. Um, and so yeah. obviously I'm sure that the congregation received it well. Were you aware mm -hmm. of the king and queen's presence while you were preaching? Or were you, I mean, could you see them um, and, and when you looked mm -hmm. up? And was that a distraction in any way? <laughs> Tony, I was about 15 feet from them, and they were right on the front pew to my left. The church is built almost like a cross. The main congregation sit in the middle. There's a royal section to the left. There is a section to the right for folks who are invited guests, and they, there was a military presence there. Uh, and, of course, there's royal protection officers, and there's press, and there's visitors. So you're conscious of all of that. But Tony, you preach often enough, as do a number of your listeners, to know that when you're preaching, your focus, of course, is on what you're saying in the love and grace of God. And the rest, you are conscious of, but is very much secondary. Right. Well, and, and how, how did the congregation receive it? You know, we hear a lot about the secularization of Europe, and that mm -hmm. includes, of course, England, yeah. Scotland, um, all of the countries mm -hmm. where people seem to be mm -hmm. turning away. Um, did you find, yes. were you able to interact with the people uh, before or after the service, and did you find them to be uh, people of passion about their relationship with the Lord? Well, Tony, the great thing is that being uh, being there with the minister himself, of course I was able to interact with some of the congregation, but not too many. But the ones I did interact with were, of course, Christian folks who come Sunday morning, like so many others, to have their soul fed. But there's no question, Europe is definitely, there's an aggressive secularization taking place. Right. But those who were there were very open, were very engaging, listened well. And one of the great joys was that after the service, Ruth and I, along with the minister and his wife, went over to Balmoral Castle. And we were welcomed by the king, and we had about 25 minutes just to chat with uh, the king. Wow. What did you talk about? I mean, that's going to be the first question. What, what kind of converse did you talk about? The sermon? Did you talk about, um, you yep. know, what, is that what you talked about primarily? Well, when, when you arrive, of course, you're taking into a drawing room and the king arrives a couple of minutes later. And quite honestly, we talked, and the phrase I often use is we talked about everything and nothing. We talked uh, about his coronation. We talked about his time in Scotland. We talked about the local Scottish games he was going to. I had a rather nasty heart attack back in 2005. Yeah. And it was so bad, I, I was lying in the street in Inverness, unable to breathe and had no pulse. And when the paramedics arrived about eight to ten minutes later after I collapsed, they cut off my sweater and my jacket and used the defibrillators. But in the fourth attempt, they eventually brought me back. And I finished my message with trying to make this point, that while I was lying dead in the street in Inverness, a congregation in Greenville in South Carolina were praying for a new pastor. Wow. And that's how I finished with a focus on, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And so that was in the conversation as well. He talked about, uh, I talked a little about BMW, the growth of Greenville, the upstate, what is life like in the United States. Right. And again, we talked about everything and nothing. And so, and he, I'm sure, complimented you on your Southern accent before uh, he did. That was the first thing he noticed, yes. of course. Yes, of yeah. course. Well, <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this question. Let's uh, shift gears here a little bit and talk about sure. um, as we go into 2024, it's hard to believe mm -hmm. that we're coming up on the end of August, heading into Labor Day next week, mm -hmm. and um, you yeah. know, the time seems to be going pretty quickly. Um, there's a lot it of does. tension in the country. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we're extremely yeah. divided politically and in other ways. Mm -hmm. And as we go into 2024, there are a lot of people, me included, 
um, that are concerned mm -hmm. that this could boil over, that we could see actual uh, open violence begin to be common, yes. even, even as we're seeing some of those instances on a small scale in places around the mm -hmm. country, as we get into 2024, it could be exacerbated by a very uh, contentious presidential election. I mean, here mm -hmm. you have you have mm -hmm. the president of the United States is under suspicion yep. because of all the accusations and the evidence that's been presented mm -hmm. against him. And then you have the former president, yep. who's the front runner, who just got indicted mm -hmm. yesterday for the fourth time. He's got 90-something yep. charges against him. And these are the two choices mm -hmm. that we're likely going to have for president. How do we, yep. as Christians, this is the question, because if you can answer this one, um, I, how do we as believers, how do we step into that environment and try to make a difference for the good? I mean, Jesus has called us, and a lot of people hate it when I talk like this, but it's the truth. Christ mm -hmm. has called us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. So how do we mm -hmm. best approach that and try to make the culture better? And do you think that we're going to get through this year? Tony, all that you've said, people immediately recognize and can identify with. And everything you've said is accurate. From my perspective as a Christian, my job is to stand firmly but graciously for the things of God. And as I look back historically, I think back to Pearl Harbor. I think back, of course, to the Civil War. I think back to First and Second World War. There are so many things in our nation's history that have been contentious, that have been divisive, some of them from outside, many of them from inside. Tony, I try to encourage folks to look on the things in the cult cultural life of the United States, look at the things not that inspire us rather than the things that offend us. Because it's so easy in this day and age to jump on the bandwagon to be critical of others, to be cynical, to treat all things with uh, a sense of cynicism and despair. And I would rather not do that because the scripture teaches me this, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. And think back where we came from. We came from those early days of being British colonies to where we are today. God is not finished with the United States. I absolutely convinced he is not comfortable or happy with uh, people living with that sense of always looking to get one up on someone else, always wanting to put someone else down, always wanting to polarization and hatred. That is never a good way to go. Stand well, graciously, firmly, agree to disagree, and, leave, and trust him for the rest. Now, that may seem a little naive, but good night. Uh, I've been naive in the, play, in the past, but my naivety is also wrapped up in prayer and trust. Well, something that I've really been convicted about, uh, particularly of late, is is the amount of vitriol and anger that's out there. It's on social mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. uh, you you feel it yeah. in people. You know, incidents of road rage are up, and part yeah. of that is yeah. because people are mad and they get behind the wheel of a car yeah. mad, and then something happens mm -hmm. that normally they would just brush mm -hmm. off. And it escalates yep. into something because they're already yep. a powder keg. And I think about what the scripture yes. says. You know, you talked about uh, Ephesians 3. In Paul mm -hmm. talked about in Ephesians, in his letter, he said, let no unwholesome thing come out of your mouth, but yep. only that Indeed. which gives encouragement. In other words, I think, mm -hmm. I think all of us as believers, particularly in the environment that we're in today, need to stop yep. and think before we say something. Is it going to lessen the tension that there is, in, or is it going to add to it? Am I building up mm -hmm. the body? Am I uh, yep. pointing to the peace of God that passes understanding? Mm -hmm. Or am I yep. becoming an agent that is actually causing more turmoil and, and more trouble? You know, you, know, you mentioned Pearl yes. Harbor, and you mentioned World War I mm -hmm. and II. Those were, mm -hmm. those were actually things that when they happened, they united the country against a common yes. enemy. And yet the problem yes. that we face today is that that we're dis we are 
uh, torn apart because we think each other is the enemy. The common enemy that we mm-hmm. have is the people that disagree with us. If we disagree, yes. we have to then point the finger and say, that person is evil because they look at life a little bit differently. Now, I'm not suggesting that there isn't evil in some of the philosophies that are out there. There, There mm-hmm. is. There is. But when we start from a platform of you're bad, I'm good, and the other side is saying the same yes. thing, um, it yes. escalates, and and that's what I'm praying that we're going to be able to to change as we get into 2024, particularly as the political season hits up, heats up rather. It, it, it is, and Tony, I try to make the point as regularly as I can. Deal with the policy rather than the person. Once you go after the person, I think you're on thin ice at that point. Right. Deal with the policy, argue out the issue, do it articulately uh, in an articulate manner, listen, engage, but you don't get to attack the person. When right. I grew up in Scotland playing soccer as a child, they would say, you go after the ball, not the man. And that's, that's how I operate. And sometimes that's hard because you do feel that folks with an opposite perspective don't play by those rules. Right. And that gets a little frustrating at times. Yes. But once again, I'm going to come back and say, Lord, you are able to do immeasurably more than all I can ask or imagine. And he's not finished with us by a long way. So I can trust him for it. Yes. You know, it, it's true that a lot of people don't play by the same rules. And I hear that all the time. I hear people, they'll come back at me mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, you're weak. You're going in in a weak position. Mm-hmm. You've got people coming with yeah. to, with a knife and a gunfight, and you're walking in there with nothing. Yeah. And my, yeah. Res- yeah. I, I'm really working on my response being this, that no, yes. you're right. We are not free as kingdom agents as representatives of Jesus Christ to play by the rules of the world. We're supposed to live by the word, not by what the world says. And that makes us different. Uh, And and I'm still working that out. Yeah. I'm still working that out. I think, I think most of us are, most of us are because it's so easy to get hot under the collar. It's so easy to attack. It's so easy to try and get a gotcha moment or one up in someone else. But I am not called to that. I'm called to seek after the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and trust him in the middle of it. And that's hard. This is a narrow road at times. That's what we're called to. Well, congratulations on an incredible honor uh, that you received, an an opportunity of a lifetime. We're glad that you were able to go and to come back safely. And we pray for uh, your ministry there at First Presbyterian Church, as well as for for pastors everywhere that every Sunday get up in front of a congregation and speaks the word of God, um, we pray yep. that we'll all be led by the Holy Spirit and speak the things right. that speak light and life into the world, that we condemn those things that are wrong, uh, but we also speak yep. the words of hope and light at the same time. Let's mm-hmm. uh, let's pray together before we, before we say goodbye. Sure. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus, and we, we just thank you for this opportunity we've had to have this conversation. And we do pray that as believers, we will not allow the world to overcome us or overwhelm us because your word teaches that we are overcomers, but that we will mm-hmm. overcome by the power of the word and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not the strength of our mm-hmm. anger or even our passion yep. that is going to win. It's the strength of, of you, Lord. It's our weakness, because in our weakness, you are made strong, and we need to make you strong by what you've taught us in your word. We need to allow that strength to, to come forth in a world that is extremely uh, in turmoil and in chaos right now. Give us, the, give us the power by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth in love, to do it as, mm-hmm. as faithfully as we know how, and we'll yep. give you the praise and the yep. glory for the outcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. Brother, thank you. Amen. Yeah, appreciate your Tony, time always today. a delight. We will talk Have to you soon. Have a blessed weekend. God bless you. Same to you. Okay. Dr. Richard Gibbons, he's the pastor at First Baptist, uh, First Baptist, listen to me, First Presbyterian Church in Greenville. Boy, I'm going to get some grief from that. I got a feeling uh, from from Richard. But anyway, uh, what an opportunity. Um, I wanted you to be able to hear a little bit about that 
today. All right, let's move on, talk about another things, uh, a couple of other things here quickly. Um, when, when we think about uh, President Trump, we're talk, we were talking about the debate, we were talking about President Trump's strategy. Uh, he basically decided not to attend the debate, and, we, and I've let you know what I think about that. I mean, I, I know that it opened him up to criticism, and there are those who say that that's going to give President Biden an excuse to not debate him if he is the candidate. Uh, but I, 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 I understand why Trump wasn't there. I mean, honestly, he had Vivac there. Um, now, what, again, whether that was intentional or that's just the way it worked out, um, when Trump's name come up and, and it actually came up twice, um, then, you know, you, it was as if sometimes that he was there. Uh, and it gave him another platform to talk about some of the things that he wanted to get across with Tucker Carlson. Um, I've, I found that in, if you've listened to it, and I'm, I'm sure that 180 million was the last number that I saw. I think the debate was watched by 12 and a half, 13 million people. And this interview with Tucker Carlson has had 180 million views. Now, th there's no way to know how many people that represents. Uh, it's a little bit harder when you're talking about social media because you can click on for a second. I mean, you don't have to be on, but just for a second or two and, and click off and you get counted. So it's, it's not like there were 180 million individuals that watched, but 180 million exposures uh, is incredible. Even if you have 13 million people watching in the debate, you get 180 million exposures. Um, uh, former President Trump certainly got the attention that he wanted. But here's here was an interesting question I thought that Tucker brought up, just kind of a stream of thought. He asked President Trump, do you think that your enemies will try to kill you? And I, and I, you know, I have to say, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I guess I should have, but I haven't thought about in the danger to him. He's got Secret Service protection. Um, he's surrounded by security. But here's the way that part of the interview went on Wednesday. I'm looking at the trajectory since 2015 when you got into politics, yeah. you know, for real, and then won. Uh, there, it started with protests against you, massive protests, right. organized protests by the left, and then it moved to impeachment twice, right. and now indictment. I mean, the next stage is, is violence. Is, are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you, honestly? Uh, they're savage animals. They are people that are sick, really sick. You have great people in the Democrat Party. You have great people that are Democrats. Most yeah. of the people in our country are fantastic, and I'm representing everybody. I'm not just Republicans or conservatives. Right. I represent everybody. I'm the president of everybody. But I've seen what they do. I've seen the lengths that they go to. When they make up the Russia, 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 when that's exposed and they go down and Barr should have gone after them and other people should have gone after. And they did very late because the Durham report came out. It was fairly good. It could have been a lot tougher, I guess, but it was fairly good. But it explained how corrupt it was. Uh, I'll tell you who did a great job was the Inspector General Horowitz. He did a phenomenal report. You didn't have to go to Durham. He did it on Comey and on, I guess, McCabe and some others. And it was a vicious, it was basically a true report how bad they are. Okay, so here's here's my question. I I, I get it. Um, I, I guess why they're having a conversation like this. But when you're talking about running for president of the United States, uh, this this was not an interview that really focused in on issues that are going to be debated and the decision that Republicans are going to make. It there were a lot of questions that really didn't have anything to do with looking ahead to 2024 and for uh, Trump to make the case why he should be the person. Now, there were th there were moments in the interview where that happened, but I'm just thinking about you've got, what, an hour? I think the interview was about an hour long. Um, and it seems to me, now it was, it was directed by Tucker Carlson, but it seems to me for Trump to decide to skip the debate and to talk about things um, that he wanted to talk about, it, it would have been better if he focused in more on things that actually have an influence on the outcome of the election. Now, I get it. It's more about emotion than it is about substance. Unfortunately, at least I think it's unfortunate, we're living in a time 
where uh, substantive arguments often get pushed aside for the things that touch our emotions, that get us riled up, that it, we're looking for that line, that moment when a, a political leader or somebody d steps up and says something, maybe in a soundbite, that gets our blood pressure up. And I, I just think that's a, that's a bad way for us to make decisions. You know, feelings are good things, um, I, but, but feelings should be the caboose of the train, so to speak. In other words, we shouldn't be leading with our feelings. We need to leave, lead with our minds. We need to think things through and allow the things that we think and the information that we have and what we know to rule over our feelings because feelings can be affected by so many things. And I just think it's not good. It's not healthy for us as a country when we're so driven by emotion. I mean, during this interview, um, President Trump talked about the Panama Canal and how bad it was that we gave away the Panama Canal, how many people died trying to, to build it. And yes, it, it was a bad thing, I think. I, I think it would have been better for the United States to retain control of the Panama Canal. But I'm not sure that the Panama Canal is going to be on the, the tip of people's minds as they're thinking about who to vote for for president. Now, when you've got a 62% uh, lead in the Republican primary, maybe you can just talk about whatever you want because it doesn't matter. Um, but another question that came up is Tucker Carlson asked President Trump, do you think Epstein killed himself? And this is how that portion of the interview went. Do you do you think Epstein killed himself sincerely? I don't know. I, I will say that, you know, he was a fixture in Palm Beach. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what Barr said about it either. I have no idea what he said. What did he say? He killed himself, probably? He said he killed way. himself and that they were going to do this investigation. They never did the investigation. It's never been yeah. public. Well, and did. they hid it. And, like, why are they doing that? Well, and clearly Barr knew. But why would Bill Barr be covering up the death of Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, Bill Barr didn't do an investigation on the election fraud either, okay? He said he did, and he pretended he did, but he didn't. Uh, uh, McSwain, the U.S. attorney in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, uh, said Barr, Barr just wouldn't let him do it. It was crazy. Barr became so petrified, so frightened of being impeached. We're going to impeach him. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah. It's not a big moment in history. But they said, we're going to impeach. You know, they play a much rougher game, the left, the lunatics. And they were going to impeach Bill Barr, and he was petrified. Now, how do you not get impeached? Don't do any of this stuff. Okay, this, it, this went on for a while. Um, it, a lot of the questions got turned back to the 20, uh, 2020 election, uh, giving uh, President Trump an opportunity again to make the point over and over again that he believes the election was rigged, you know, and and I get that. I mean, he's a, he's about to go to trial um, on federal charges, and one one of the, uh, the the case against him is that he didn't really believe the election was rigged. He simply used it um, in in some way to advance himself politically at the expense of people getting hurt over it. I mean, that's and and President Trump is, I think, in this interview and a lot of statements. He's continuing to say over and over that it was a rigged election so that, you know, he when he goes into court, uh, it's not going to undermine what his attorneys are trying to do, which is convince a jury that the president really believed that the election was rigged. Even though people told him that it wasn't, that doesn't mean that he accepted what they had to say. And basically, this was nothing more than, um, you know, free speech on the president's part and zeal in, in the political arena, where a lot of times there's, you know, kind of sharp elbows being thrown. So uh, maybe that's why he, he keeps circling back around to this. Um, but at, at the end, he basically said he thought Epstein killed himself, that he believed that he probably committed suicide. Uh, I know Car Tucker Carlson doesn't believe that. He's made it clear. He thinks there was a conspiracy that Epstein was murdered, and I think there are a lot of people that agree with that. Um, will we ever know 100% the truth? Um, I don't know. All right, Tucker at one point um, said, you know, was talking about uh, the the election. It was stolen one time. How can you be sure that it won't be stolen in 2024? Here's that exchange. But they challenged the stuff. Yeah. Hillary called me up and conceded. Now, the word is that Obama said you have to do that. 
But she called up and totally conceded. But now, you know, every time you see her on television, she's saying, like, well, she's challenging the election. Do, do you think... So that would mean that she should be indicted, but that would mean also that Stacey Abrams in Georgia should be indicted, because she still thinks she won the election for governor. She still thinks that. She's never recanted. And do I... Do you think th Stacey Abrams will be indicted for that? No, of course not. She won't be. The Democrats don't get indicted for things like that. They don't get impeached. No, it's it's a different thing. Is, With that being said... Yes. I okay. Uh, again, um, you've got an hour, and, and I understand that there's a lot of passion rolled up in the feeling about the 2020 election, and that there are a lot of people in the Republican base who are responding to this. They're that that's getting them ready to go out and vote for Trump. But my point is, they're already going to vote for Trump. My question is, and it's going to continue to be during this election cycle, what is the plan for the general election? Or do we really believe or, or do we think that the people that are passionate about Trump and believe that the election was stolen, that there are enough of those people that are going to look at his indictments and look at 2020 and be motivated to vote for him in the general election if he's the nominee. Um, look, I, I, Trump's been mistreated. Anybody that doesn't believe that has not been following the news. The fact that he's being indicted in all these different cases, um, again, I'm going to go back to what, of course, Trump doesn't like Bill Barr because at one point he liked him. Uh, but the minute you disagree with Trump or you call something into question that Trump does or says, then you become a person who's anathema. You're on the other side. But but Bill Barr actually has been defending Trump in the sense that he said that these charges against him never should have been brought because they're not bread and butter crimes. You you don't go after a political opponent during, a, during an election season with indictments unless what they have done is so egregious uh, and that you've got, you've got a smoking gun, you've got the evidence stacked up, it's irrefutable, then you have to act. But to do so in any other way could be, can, is, could be seen and is being seen by a lot of people in this country as election interference. It looks like politics at its worst. It looks like third world country um, actions, not countries that operate in a constitutional republic manner that are free, that have free elections. It just, it looks more like Venezuela than it looks like the United States. And I, th I think there's some legitimate concerns about that, um, about the, how, how this whole thing's going down. And I haven't really talked a lot about, we're, we're out of time, um, and uh, uh, we'll talk some more on Monday about Trump's indictment in Georgia um, we, we also haven't talked about uh, the death of the, of the Wagner leader, uh, which I believe Vla Vladimir Putin had the, had the guy killed. I mean, um, Evgeny uh, Prigozhin, I, 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 you, you, what are you talking about? The plane just blows up in midair, um, and they won't even confirm. We can't even get a complete confirmation that he was on the plane. But and, and there's some who are saying, well, there's another plane that took off. Maybe he survived. Maybe he wasn't on it. I, it, all of the evidence right now points toward his death and that it being, you know, he, he went against Vladimir Putin. You don't go against Vladimir Putin and live, at least not for very long. Um, but we'll talk about that more on Monday. And the other thing is, of course, Trump's uh, surrender in Georgia last night. Why in the world would they take a mugshot? I mean, First of all, it's not necessary. It may be procedural, but he's been indicted and all these other... He's been indicted in New York. He was indicted on federal charges twice. No mugshot. He goes into Georgia, and this just looks like it's it's trying to make him um, embarrass him. It's not just about the charges. But here's the thing. It's going to backfire. I mean, how many... When that mugshot was released... How many T-shirts are going to have that face, that scowling face? He even said to one of his aides, he thinks he looks like Churchill in the mugshot. How many, how many, where is that picture going to end up? And how much money is he going to raise off of the mugshot? He already put out his very first um, social media interaction on something other than true, so, true social was he went back on X, which formerly is Twitter, and he put the mugshot out there uh, along with a link where you could contribute to his campaign. 
Um, I just, I, I don't think the people in Georgia thought this through. If they thought that was going to be to humiliate him, uh, they were not thinking very clearly because for his supporters, uh, that mugshot is going to be everywhere and it's going to be used as an, uh, an opportunity to continue to gain support for him. All right, uh, we'll get into more of that on Monday since we're out of time for the rest of it today. Listen, thanks for joining me for the show today. I really appreciate it. I, I, it humbles me to know that there are people that watch live um, and that people go back and download and that follow me on the podcast. If, if you're not doing that, please do so. Look for Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And you can follow me, and it's probably in about 20 minutes. Uh, the podcast will be up, should be available in about an hour. Um, and if you do follow the podcast, please give me a good review, because when you do that, it means that other people that are looking for this kind of podcast uh, might decide to give it a try as well. God bless you. Have a great weekend. I'll see you on Monday morning at 730.